We are, uh, we've officially been in Gloucester City having services for a year. Amen? And, and we're going to have a, a celebration of that at the end of April. We're going to wait until after Lent, after Easter to do that. We'll have a big meal. And we'll also have our first class, our first group of people join the church. So praise God. Like, he's doing some stuff in Gloucester. And, and I'm just so thankful for every one of you. I was talking to um, Chris last night. I was like, I just, and I just ran down. I'm just like, I, I'm so thankful for every single one of you. And it's been really encouraging to watch God work. And I know that most of us are going through some really hard stuff. And yet it's been really encouraging to see God working. So we've been in this series on repentance, which, um, by the way, if you were going to try to have a series that was all about inviting everybody in town and was super seeker sensitive, you probably wouldn't call it repentance. And it's heavy stuff. A couple weeks ago, I started off and I started with the idea of what's wrong with the world. And we read from Romans 1. And we talked about how our very conscience, our very ability to sense God, to sense what's right and wrong, has become broken. That we have so dug ourselves into a hole, we don't realize we're in a hole. You know, we are like the, we're like the person who doesn't know what light is like. We're walking around at midnight. We're lost. We're bumping into things. We don't know why we're falling, why we're stumbling. And I talked about how we need the gospel, which is the power of God, that dynamite, that is salvation for everyone, no matter what your background is. Last week, Robert Hernandez, he spoke about true confession. And he reminded us what the word repentance even means in the Greek and how it, how it means basically to change our mind. I want to add a little bit to that. It is true that that's what the word means in Greek. But when we look at the Hebrew word, it's adding a whole different level to it because the Greeks were very, like, in their heads. <laughs> but the Hebrews were very much down to earth, and it was very much concrete in the way they thought. And so their word for repentance in the Bible means to turn around and go in a different direction. And when we put those two together, we get a big, we get a full picture of what repentance is. We change our mind. Starts, it starts on the inside. But then it, it, it bubbles out and it flows out to actually a changed life. Where we turn around. We stop doing the things we were doing. And we move in a different direction. And then tonight, I'm going to talk to you about godly grief and worldly grief. Hopefully you were able to track with Sister Elaine as she was reading the word. And Paul talks about 
the difference between grief that leads to repentance and grief that just leads to death. And next week I'm going to preach to you about something that you probably don't hear a lot in certain churches. I'm going to preach about restitution. And we're going to look at Zacchaeus. You know, if you've ever been in Sunday school or anything like that, you know Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he, right? He climbed up the sycamore tree to try to see Jesus. Well, he was a sellout tax collector that was ripping off everybody. And when he met Jesus, he repaid the people that he stole from ten times. And we're going to talk about it is absolutely true that restoration is impossible with God in this sense. Salvation is a gift, You can't add to it. There is nothing you can do to impress God. There is nothing you can do to make it right again. But God has decided to come into this world, and he decided on his own will to come and save you from a bad situation and to make it whole and to make it right. But when we experience God's forgiveness, we have to care about our relationships with the people around us. And a changed heart, a heart transformed by God, wants to make things right with the people around them. I talked about a couple weeks ago that there's righteousness and there's godliness. And sometimes in our churches we only talking about godliness. And we don't care about racism. We don't care about justice. We don't care about Like, just file for bankruptcy and just live however you want to do and just, like, don't think about the consequences that your life has on anybody else. Claim what blessings you can and keep it moving. And as Christians, we have to care about living just lives. We have to care about doing things a certain way, not because it's going to get us saved, not because, we, we, you know, we're, we're afraid that our... You know, God, our Father in Heaven's got like a big hammer and he's about to smash us if we don't do it right. But because we care about justice. And when you've been saved and you've been forgiven, you have a heart that wants to make things right with people. As far as it's possible with you. And we'll get into that because it's not always possible. And some of the sin that we commit has so much ruin in it, we'll die. And, and we'll live our whole life and we'll die. And we will not have dug ourselves out of the debts we have to people. But as far as it's possible for us, that's the direction that God calls us to go, is to make things right with the people around us. Now, this text that Sister Elaine read for us is Paul's exposition on Jesus' words, blessed are those who mourn. Have you, have you ever heard of the, the Beatitudes? Uh, a few months ago, we were preaching through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' main teaching. And he says, you know, blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. And here, Paul is taking that idea of blessed are those who mourn, and he's given us some, some more stuff, something to think about. Paul says here that we, he says that 
that the Corinthian church was grieved as God willed. Did you notice that? Paul said, you were grieved as God willed. There's this church. I actually first ran into this church in Africa when I was serving there for four years. And they have a really long name, but the short name where they have the banners and all that is no suffering. <laughs> no suffering. And, and then they have a really long name too. And they're all over the world. And, and what they specialize in is They'll say that any suffering in your life, any grieving, any sorrow, it is from some unseen force of evil that you need to have exercised from your life. So all sorrow in this life is just, you just don't have enough faith. Every problem that you're struggling with has a demon behind it. Here's the problem, brothers and sisters. When we are the hero all the time or when we're the victim and passive all the time in all of our sorrow, we aren't in the gospel story. We aren't in God's story. We aren't in check with reality. The fact is, is that there's a lot of sorrow in this life and it comes from a lot of different places. And one of those places that we see, which might surprise you, is God himself. Because it says God willed that you would be grieved. God willed. Not, it didn't say Satan willed that you would be grieved. It didn't say you were grieved because of your own mess. It said God willed that you would struggle, that you would grieve. Can you believe that? Can you hold on to that? And, and sometimes we'll, we'll say things like God has no hand in suffering, trying to protect the name of God. There was a preacher named Spurgeon. He said, I don't need to protect God. I don't need to protect the gospel. That's like setting up a bunch of soldiers around a bear that's caged in. No. It's a gory image, but it's one that's easy to remember. He said, all you got to do is open the gate. <laughs> Let the bear out. Right? Sometimes we feel like we got to apologize. We got to make excuses for God. And we don't have to. We, 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 yes, we should explain it as best as we can. Because sometimes people just hear stuff and it's really badly explained and they're lost. And they're, they're like, okay, so I just need to do good things and then I'll get into heaven. Like, they have no grid. <laughs> For what God has said in his word. But listen. You can explain things. You can try to make, help things make sense for people. But you don't need to make excuses. God is who he is. His word says what it says. You know, it's not like the constitution. We don't like get to have amendments. It is what it is. So Paul spoke some hard words here. I mean, he jammed up the Corinthians. And when you read the commentaries and you read those who've researched these letters, it seems like there was a letter that was written that we lost to history. It seems like Paul wrote the Corinthians a letter between writing the first letter that he wrote, which we have in the Bible called 1 Corinthians, and then we have a book called 2 Corinthians, Right, originally it was just a letter. It didn't have a title. 
right? Paul sent it out, and then it would be read not only in Corinth, but all over the world until it just became part of all the letters of Paul and part of the scriptures. That could be a good theology on tap discussion. How was the Bible put together? That was a really big question that I had when I was a new Christian because I was like, okay, I like Jesus and all, but, but like I got that conspiracy theory type stuff. You know what I mean? I'm like, all right, so who are the people in power that chose this and that book and what, was the, what were they selling? You know what I mean? I had that kind of mindset. And um, that, that would be a good discussion for us. Here's the thing. I don't know. Nobody knows what was written in that, that letter. But Paul's saying that he hurt them with his words. But we do know what he wrote in the first letter, which was bad enough. <laughs> and one of the things that we see in 1 Corinthians is that Paul looks at a church that's using its spiritual gifts without having any spiritual maturity. He, he, he warns the Corinthians. He's like, this is what was happening. And maybe something like this has happened to you. Somebody came up to, they would come up to each other, and they'd be like, I have something that God has impressed on me to tell you. And then they jam them up, and they say, you are wrong. You need to leave that woman. You need to leave that house. You need to not do this business. You need to do that business. And you know what? God was speaking through them. But they didn't have the humility they didn't have the maturity. They didn't have the character that comes alongside of that. So God was showering down gifts. It says they were able to perform miracles, but then they were bragging about it. And it says that people were following different folks. And, 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 and it was, like, it was like, like here in Gloucester, it's like, oh, you know what? Epiphany, that's cool and all, but my guy is really Dylan. And then somebody else like, no, my guy is Pastor Joe. And then, like, people started to form different groups. So they were given gifts by God, but they didn't have maturity in God. There's something else that happened in the Corinth church. Paul writes to them and tells them, listen, you can't go to the old pagan temples and sleep with prostitutes. Now, these are he's not saying that to the, the people outside the church, like, that's a bad thing, shh. Like, you know, cursing the darkness. Oh, what a big, bad world. They're doing this and that. No, he was saying, you all in the church, you got to stop doing this. This is the same people that he says, I thank God for you all the time. This is the same people that says he calls saints. And yet at the same time, they are deep in the culture. I'm not going to make you raise your hand, but yeah, some of us, we're still deep in the culture. And we're making our way out. <laughs> and we're growing. And we need to get jammed up. We need to hear hard things. Here's another thing that was happening. The people were getting together, and I'll update it to 2019. The people were getting together. And the folks who had a lot of money were coming together, and they were having cognac, and they were having, you know, vodka, and they were having all the nice liquors. They were having everything good, steak, and all this stuff. And then guess what was happening? Then the other people, the workers, the slaves, 
the, the union guys, they were coming in. They were like, okay, all we have left is ramen and water. And so, like, imagine that at a piff. We got our fourth. Now, Val is going to cook the main dish. She's going to cook up some fried chicken. Now, imagine, though, if it was like, we, I was just like, hey, you 10 people get to have the fried chicken. Everybody else is having ramen. That would be great for Corbin. <laughs> but do you understand what I'm saying? Paul rebukes him and says, listen, you get together. You're drunk and full and being gluttonous. And you're not acting like the people who work in your homes, the people who are sweeping the streets, the people who are working regular jobs. You're not acting like they're your brothers and sisters. When you get together, there is no difference. You are all one family. You are all brothers and sisters. So I don't know what else he called them out for, but he gives us enough. He gives us enough stuff in that first letter, and he talks about godly grief, and he talks about worldly grief. What is worldly grief? What is worldly sorrow? Now, anyone who has kids knows what this is. This is not sorry that I did that, but sorry I got caught, right? Not sorry, yeah, I'm sorry I did that. It's sorry I got caught. Paul says, worldly grief produces death. And the title of my sermon is, From Rent-A-Center to Milk Crates. Can you say that? From Rent-A-Center to Milk Crates. One more time. From Rent-A-Center to Milk Crates. Maybe we've been that guy, I know we've known that guy or that girl, who gets a new place hooked up. And they get in the spot, and they get the leather seats and the couch and the 70-inch screen TV from Rent-A-Center. And what happens? I'll give you a more dramatic example. When I was living in Africa, one of the things of the culture was you would get married, and for the first six months, you would be set up in a spot. You would be set up in a spot by the paved road on the hill, and you would have a place with really nice furniture and you'd have a propane tank and you would be able to cook food on the range and you would have uh, just a beautiful beautiful spot and what would happen is everybody who supported you because weddings are a big deal see we don't know how to celebrate in America we do not know how to party we think we do we think we're all we're all hedonistic we have no clue <laughs> All right, I'm telling you. And, 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 and so they'd have these parties, and the cost of a wedding is like in the order of many times a year's salary. Many times. And your entire social network comes together. Whoever you know, everybody helps out, and then all those people come and visit you, and they want to see you doing good. But then after about six months... You leave that hooked up apartment and you're down by the mud road and you got mud walls and a tin roof and you trade your propane gas range thing and you go and you get a little canister that you put charcoal in and you trade your leather seats and you go get a wicker seat or like a little wooden bench. What does this have to do? What, is, what does this have to do with anything? What does 
you know, Rent-A-Center and milk crates have to do any with anything. Well, um, I could ask you, and we could find out a lot about each other, what you can use a milk crate for. <laughs> We'd be able to separate. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, some people would be like, oh, it's really cool for putting my records. You know what I mean? <laughs> Other people would be like, that's a really nice stand next to my bed. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? Like, there's a lot of things you can do with, a, with milk crates. Here's the thing with worldly, worldly sorrow, worldly grief. It realizes, it realizes that sin's going to downsize your life. It realizes that. It realizes that you're going to slide from Renaissance swag to milk crate you know, no furniture in your house, cockroaches running around. It realizes that. Sin will mess up your life, and worldly sorrow understands that, but it doesn't have the power to change you at all. See, worldly grief is suffering for the loss of looking good. It's suffering the loss of being seen to be something that you're not. See, we didn't have our joy in the right spot from the first place. There's, there is, for those who are familiar with AA or any 12-step program, there is the fourth step, which is a searching and fearless moral inventory of yourself. Let me say that again. The fourth step is a searching and fearless moral inventory of yourself. Guess what? That's not just for people in addiction. That's for everybody. That's for anybody that wants to call themselves a Christian and know God. We all have to do a searching deep and fearless inventory of ourselves. And we're going to do that. Okay? We're going to do that. When we have when we do membership, one of the things that we want to do is we want to We've been working on these reflections that you can take home, and you don't got to share and air your business out with everybody, but you ask yourself how you're doing. How am I doing spiritually? How am I doing loving people? How am I doing as a mom? How am I doing as a wife? How am I doing as a dad? How am I doing as a neighbor? And we'll, we'll be getting that out to you. I want to read a quote from the Recovery Life Bible, which, by the way, you know, that's, it's a really good Bible. We have them. If, if you are, have any history of being on that road of recovery, let me know. We want to get you resources that will help you. But it says, this applies to every single person here, okay? So even if you've never had an issue with substance abuse, please listen. We all have to deal with sorrow, we may try to stuff our sorrow down and ignore it. We may try to drown it by giving in to our addictions or avoid it by intellectualizing it. But sorrow doesn't go away. We need to accept that sorrow will be a part of this inventory process. Listen. If you're going to check yourself, if you're going to look at your life, you're going to see a bunch of stuff that don't look good. 
That's what's going to happen. Do you hear what I'm saying? If you're going to do a real fearless and searching inventory of yourself, you're going to look at your soul. I can't say that it's going to be an easy process. And this is an absolutely terrifying sermon for me to preach, to stand here before you and to tell you to be fearless and searching to search yourself. Because I know personally that I got a lot of pain and a lot of exposing and a lot of cleansing for myself to go through. And I got a lot of love for things I shouldn't love. I need you to know that I know what it's like to be stuck in a rut. Feel like you're on the hamster wheel in life. And feel like there's no exit out. To be afraid that I'll never change. But in this passage, we see this description that Paul gives us in verse 11. What desire to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what deep longing, what zeal, what justice. Does this describe you? This is what it looks like to have godly sorrow and really repent. Jesus demands everything. You'll have to rearrange your schedule. You'll have to rethink your opinions. You'll have to reconsider your closest friends. And you'll have to repent of your sins. But he is unimaginably worth it. There are two ways that godly grief grabs us. One is we say things like it is what it is. We live in the sorrow. We accept it. We just are passive about it. And we just say, well, everybody's, nobody's perfect, right? We're all in the same boat together. But we say things like if that's the worst I do, whatever, you know. And you compare yourself to other people. And guess what? In this world, it's going to be easy for you to compare yourself to people who are more jacked up than you. That's always an option. It ain't a good option. It ain't an option that has any future. It isn't an option that's going to help you. (laughs) There's a difference between feeling good and being good. And the big problem that we have is we're always chasing feeling good at the expense of actually being good. We do anything we can to drown that voice of guilt in our lives. The last thing we want to do is take a deep and fearless inventory in our life. I told you before I was in the bar with a guy and he told me how he heard the church bells ringing every day. He lived right across from the church, and he was kind of opening up. He was like three, four beers in. You know what I mean? He, he was being real. He was being 100. He said, listen, he knew I was a pastor. And he said, every time I hear it, I feel guilty. Like, you know, I should be there. And what he wanted from me is for me to be like, the ref that was going to tap him out and be like, it's okay. And I couldn't do that. God uses grief. God uses guilt. Don't stuff it down. Don't ignore it. Don't turn your back on it. 
See, God doesn't want to just cover up and hide your guilt. He forgives you of your sin, and he wants to cleanse you, and he wants to make you new. So that's one way that worldly sorrow gets you is that you just get stuck in it and you suppress it and you just sort of live with it. And then it, it's so toxic, that sorrow, you just like, you, you move into this acceptance. Here's another way, terror. You are paralyzed with sorrow. You're like, I'm not a good person. I've talked to people like this, too. I'm sure you have. You don't even know them. Like, you don't know them from anything. And they're telling you within five minutes, like, I'm a homewrecker. I'm not a good person. They're not trying to normalize. They're not trying to make what they did right. They're trying to say to you, and they're trying to express the fact that they feel worthless. And they fear deep down in their soul that they can't ever change. And they might think to themselves, I should just kill myself. And they think to themselves, maybe, maybe I should just, just get high. Just forget about this. Just forget about this. And they think to themselves, maybe I should just get drunk. I should just step outside of my marriage. I should just do me and get some slither of happiness in this life because I've been beat up my whole life and I'm not worth real happiness, so I'll take this cheap happiness. I'm not going to, you know, it's like there's sugar and then there's that nasty pink and blue stuff. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? what I'm asking you tonight to wrap us up is I'm asking for you to cultivate that godly sorrow. What I'm trying to say is, yeah, tap out and give up on that worldly sorrow that just terrorizes you and tells you that you're never going to change. Don't believe that. Don't accept things as they are and just say, I'm in this sorrow, this is life, everybody's in it, and just accept that either. Your job is to come clean, as Rob preached last week. Your job is not to lift yourself up, to comfort yourself. Your job is to humble yourself in front of God. And here's what I got to tell you. You're not going to grow. You're not going to grow in a significant way until you realize the depth of your problem. You're not going to grow in a significant way until you realize that how you've acted and what you said and what you've done is not only like this is just a sad world, we all live in it, but you are able to own the fact that actually the way that I am is deserving of my body breaking down and dying. And the way that I am deserves hell. That's how you get verse 11. 
Indignation. That's how you get, oh, I want to change. Oh, I want to clear my name. Oh, I want to be a new person. Oh, I want to have zeal for the Lord. You've got to get to the point where you realize that you're a mess, but God loves you. You've got to realize that you're screwed up, but God loves you. We have all these cliches, and we go around telling people. I heard this pastor, another Epiphany Church in Brand, um, Brandon. His name is Brandon. And he was talking up in Brooklyn, and he said, we like to go around and say stuff like, I'm, high, I'm blessed and highly favored. And the reality is, nah, you're broken and dysfunctional. Stop, stop pretending. You need to get to the point where you can take that fearless inventory yourself. And you need to trade your Renaissance swag, your dumb leather couch, your dumb 70-inch TV, and you need to set up, just set up those milk crates, all right? Put the little plywood over it, and God will add to that. God will lift you up. You humble yourself, and you say, yeah, I deserve death, I deserve hell, and Lord, save me, and he will. Revival, which is just God pouring his spirit on people and opening their eyes to who he is, it always starts with mourning. So cry out to him, God, forgive me. Make me want you. Make me stop fronting. Make me stop faking. Guys, wherever you are, as you hear what I'm saying, what I'm telling you is you might be like, hey, listen, I know I'm deep in the hole, but I'm starting to hear what you're saying. The light is coming through the hole. There's some dust that's barely, barely can see, but I can sort of hear what you're saying. This is what I'm saying. Wherever you are, pray for more. The old saints used to pray things like, Lord, let sin be like ash in my mouth. We get so desensitized. We say things we should never say. And when we need to get to the point where we're like, Lord, change the way that I talk, the way that I think. Change me from the inside out. Heal me and deliver me. Make me new. Let me pray for us. Father God, I pray, I pray that everyone here and those couldn't make it watching at home. Lord, I just pray that we would be a people who are sensitive to you, that understand godly grief, godly sorrow, and don't confuse it with worldly sorrow, that we wouldn't just be sorry that we got caught, that we wouldn't just be, Lord, aware of the danger of sin, but we would be aware of the evil of sin that we would be aware of the reality that when we sin and we go our own way, we're not just messing up our lives, we're not just making things fall apart, but we are offending our Father in heaven who we borrow every breath from. Lord, give us a bigger picture of you. Whatever it is, I pray that you'd give us a bigger picture of you. However broken our idea of your justice is, however much we've swam deep in the gutter, Lord, I pray, Father, that you would renew our minds and restore our spirits.
In the name of Jesus, amen. One of the things that we get jammed up with is that we think repentance is a once and done thing. But it's a lifestyle. Yes, it is. It's not, it's not, oh, I repented back in 96. I walked the aisle. Pastor prayed for me. I'm saved. No, we need to repent again and again. And there are layers like an onion, you know? And we might realize, we might realize, hey, this is messed up. And then, Months later, we realize the next layer is messed up, and God wants to get to the very center of who we are. So I'm going to ask you in this time just to silently confess your sins. This is the good news. Whatever you confess, God will not roll his eyes at you. God is not like, I remember my stepdad would tell me, sorry is not good enough. That's not what God says. You say you're sorry. Every single time he comes to you and he wants to empower you to walk in his direction. So let's take a moment to confess our sins. confess our sins together as a church family. Sometimes we need help. We need to learn how to confess. We don't even have the words to say. So let's say these words together. And have our being whose face is hidden from us by our sins 
and whose mercy we forget in the blindness of our hearts. Cleanse us from all offenses and deliver us from proud thoughts and vain desires that with reverent and humble hearts we may draw near to you, confessing our faults, confiding in your grace, and finding in you our refuge and strength through Jesus Christ, your Son.